Rhonda, is there a sign-up sheet in the back? Okay. So just there is a sign-up sheet for the fellowship on July 2nd after the afternoon service. So if you haven't done so, look at that and sign up to bring things for that time of fellowship. Uh, other than that, you're to remember something for next week, and that's the baby bottles. They're due back next week. So make sure those baby bottles get back. Filled with coins, checks, dollar bills. I don't think I, I don't think IOUs will work, so just consider that. All right, let's take uh, the hymns of grace, the hymns of grace, and we'll sing a Christian home. 346 hymns of grace. Let's stand together as we sing. Oh, 
Amen. Brother Cliff Montry, would you ask God to meet with us this afternoon? Father in heaven, we give you praise and adoration for your great goodness to us. Thank you for this gathering of your people again this afternoon and for your promised presence with us. Lord, we pray that we would truly know your presence this hour as we seek to worship you and pray that you would give us grace to uh, have a, a holy delight in you as we worship together and as we hear your word. We thank you for your word, that it's eternal and it's sufficient, and we pray that it would go forth and uh, accomplish your perfect work as we hear it and the Spirit applies it, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. In our consecutive reading through the Old Testament this afternoon, we find ourselves in the Song of Solomon, Chapter 5. Song of Solomon, Chapter 5. As you turn there, just let me say a couple things. I believe the chapter divisions could have been better placed. I believe that verse 1 should have been a part of the end of verse Chapter 4. Chapter 4, the couple is married and they enter into this garden for enjoyment and delight with one another. In verse 1 of chapter 5, the the beloved speaks to his bride about that invitation and how he accepts that opportunity of being with her. But then starting in verse 2, we're sort of reminded that Every marriage goes through conflict and turmoil. And at times, there can be division. And so we get a taste of that, I believe, between the two of them. He seems to be outside. She's inside. He wants to come in. She's not sure. She goes to the door maybe to let him in, smells something of his fragrance, which causes her heart to go out to him, but she opens the door, and he's not there. So she goes looking for him, and then she goes out, and and I don't have time to open up everything. I, I just found it a very interesting chapter. But finally, the daughters of Jerusalem says to her, you know, what kind of guy is this? Who is this guy? And she sort of answers, starting in verse 10, and basically her answer is, you know what? He's the best of the best. We've been separated, but I realize he's the best of the best. And you can see even how it is illustrative of our relationship to Christ and how those are times of separation. And then we realize we need him and recognize how great he is. So that's sort of a summary. Again, it's it's hard to sometimes know who's speaking and how they're speaking and so forth, and some of the language that's used is strange to us. But again, it's a love story between these two. So follow as I read. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. I eat, I, I drunk my milk. Eat, friends. Drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. Then she speaks. I I have taken off my dress and I... Cannot put it on again. I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? My beloved extend his hand through the opening. My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handle of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away. And it gone. And my heart went out to him as he spake, and I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchman who makes the rounds in the city found me, 
They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am love-struck. What kind of beloved is your beloved? O most beautiful among women, what kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure, his, adjure us. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk, a repose in their setting. His cheeks are like the bed of blossom, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars like alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughter of Jerusalem. What a, what a love story. What a, I'm not sure my wife has described me with those terms before, but she is just taken up with her beloved. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. She's, uh, that's not to put my wife down. She's come close. She loves me dearly. So, anyway. Well, now, before we come to hear the Word of God, let's uh, turn in the Trinity Hymn Book to 335. 335. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. 335. Let's stand together as we sing.
our Savior's presence as always with his people. Uh, If you'd take your Bibles with me and uh, turn to Psalm 139, it's going to be the text for this afternoon. I'll give you a second to get there. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that I've been preaching through a series on the attributes of God. And two weeks ago, if you remember, we covered the attribute of, can anyone remember? Just shout it out. The attribute we were on two weeks ago. It was, it was divine eternity. And one of the things that we said about, about divine eternity is that it was timeless. We noted that some people think about God's eternity as if it's just the fact that he has no beginning and has no end. As if his life, although it never began and although it never ends, we almost treat God as if he were still one of us because we think of his life in terms of a succession of moments. We think of his life in terms of a past, a present, and a future, as if his life was chopped up into little bits, little segments, little increments of time, like ours is. We, as creatures, we possess our life in a creaturely way, which means that we're finite, which means we live a little bit of it now, we lived a little bit of it a couple of moments ago, and we'll live hopefully a whole lot of it in the future. But we possess our life in a way totally different from how God possesses his life. And I'm hoping that today our sermon, the the sermon on the attribute of God's omnipresence or his immensity, the fact that he is everywhere all at once, will sort of correct similar ways we project our creatureliness onto God. Just as God's Just as God's eternity is his infinity with relation to time, so his omnipresent immensity is his infinity with relation to space. The two are intimately related to one another, and they're both grounded in his attributes of aseity, simplicity, and immutability. And what I hope you're seeing through this series is that all of these attributes build on one another. If his aseity is true, then his simplicity must be true. If his aseity and his simplicity are true, then he must be infinite. If his infinity is true, then he must be immutable. All these attributes build on one another and mutually enforce one another to give us a biblical and transcendent image of who our God is. And that's exactly the God that David introduces to us in Psalm 139. So that's going to be our text today. Like I said, let's read the Word of God together. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to be primarily in verses 1 through 12 today. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path in my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, as when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Thus far is the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as the one who is present in this room with us. Not present in part, but present in all of your transcendent power and glory to work out your purposes amongst us. You are the God who knows us infinitely better than we know ourselves. And you are the God who has come to us in Christ and redeemed us. As the psalm says elsewhere, you lead us beside still waters and you restore our souls even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So Lord, I I pray that you would uh, lead us to fountains of living water this afternoon. Pray that Christ would be magnified in the hearts of his people whom he bought with his precious blood. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have a psalm before us this afternoon, and we have a psalm that touches a lot of different attributes of God. This text extols the sovereignty of God. This text extols the omniscience of God, the fact that that he is not without knowledge of anything. His knowledge is infinite, just like every one of his other attributes. But But the beating heart of this psalm is... Verses 7 through 12, where David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This psalm is what uh, biblical scholars call a chiasm. The idea of a chiasm is, pre- is pretty simple. Uh, the lines are structured so that the first line and the last line match up out here, and the second to last, then the third to last. And then what you find in the very middle of a chiasm is the heart of what the author is trying to communicate to you in that psalm. And according to Dr. Jim Hamilton, at least, that's exactly what we have here in verses 7 through 12. This is a text, or this is a song, rather, where David is extolling the providential presence and the outworking of God's decree in his life. That's why we see his knowledge uh, extolled in verses 1 through 6 and why we see his presence focused on in verses 6 through 12. The heart of the psalm is the fact that God is going to do what he is going to do in David's life. God is going to fulfill all of his promises to David, and he's going to do it because not only does he know David, not only does he know every word that comes out of his mouth before it even comes out of his lips, not only is every one of David's days written in God's book before his life even began, but God is also infinitely present with David to work out that decree of what would happen in David's life. That's the drift of this entire psalm. But I want us to see this reality that forms verses 7 through 12 through David's eyes a little bit. Because this isn't just a hypothetical thing for David. Do you... 
the, the reason that David pens so many psalms is because he had a living and vital relationship with the living God that upheld him through all of the terrible things that happened in his life. Think about all the horrible things that happened in David's life. They put most of our trials to shame. I mean, he was anointed king when he was relatively young, and then he spent the next foreseeable, of his, uh, foreseeable future running from the king who was sitting on the throne who was trying to kill him. And this king would oscillate between being friendly to him and then trying to throw a spear at him and pin him to a wall. Or think perhaps about long after he becomes king, the fact that one of his own sons leads a rebellion against him in his kingdom and all the people of Israel go after his son and there's a mutiny and David is driven into exile. And then, not only that, but when the rebellion is finally put down, David can't even grieve the loss of his own son because he's worried the people are going to rise up and be angry about it again and try to overthrow him. So David's been through a whole lot of pain in his life. And the Psalms exude that pain. But they exude it with confidence in his God. So just to give us a taste of where David's coming from, let's look at verses 1 through 6. Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So in verses 2 and 3, we see the fact that our lives are open and exposed to the sight of God. There is no aspect of your life, that's what David is saying, there's no aspect of your life that is not open and exposed to God's total comprehensive knowledge of not only himself, but also of creation. Look at some of these verbs. You searched me and have known me. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search, you are acquainted. This is God being pictured as sort of a divine detective who lays a matter open and bare before him, sees not only our actions... Not only the course of our, our, not only our thoughts, not only our actions, but also the entirety of the course of our lives, from start to finish. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. This is God's total, comprehensive knowledge of our lives. He sees down to the heart, and he sees everything, everything that we do as well. But there's a reason that I'm starting off with God's knowledge. Because this is not a sermon on God's omniscience, his knowledge of all things. This is a sermon on God's omnipresence. But David links the two in a way that is so instructive for us in this psalm. What David is saying about God's knowledge is that not only does God know all of these things, as he doesn't know them as a passive observer. God doesn't know Cliff Middleton because he watches Cliff Middleton's life. God doesn't know Terry Smith because he watches everything about Terry Smith's life. He doesn't gain this knowledge by observing things from the outside. What David is trying to point us to in verse 4, look at verses 4 and 5, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. So not only do, the, do these verses show what God knows, they show that he knows it because he ordained it. It shows that our lives are subject to his decree. He doesn't know it as a passive observer. He knows it as the one who ordained it before time began. And these verses, look at verse 5, it also shows the effect of God's knowledge. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. And this is where David bridges the gap between God's omniscience and his omnipresence, and it gets to the core of this psalm and what David says about not being able to run from God's spirit and not being able to flee from his presence. 
David is saying, not only am I hemmed in by the fact that everything in my life is ordained by you and I can't run from your decree, not only am I hemmed in by your knowledge of everything that has been and will be in my life, but you are personally present, there's God's presence, you are personally present at every point in time and every point in space working out that decree for your own glory and my good. So it's not just about God's knowledge. David is linking these two things. He's saying that which God knows to be true because he ordained it, he is present everywhere in space bringing it about by his providential action. So this gets us from God's knowledge to God's omnipresence or his immensity. This is why David connects what God knows about him to the fact that God is with him. Not only has God said what will come to pass, but he is personally, providentially present at every point in time and space, bringing about what he has decreed. So God is the God who not only decrees, he's the God who effectuates that decree. Think of Romans chapter 11, verse maybe 39. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Not only are all things from him, as it issuing forth from his decree of everything that will happen in time and space, but all things are through him as well. They're worked out by his present, powerful hand at every single place in the world. This extends to the furthest reaches of the galaxy and the most minute part of our lives. So David turns to God's omnipresent relationship with time and space and this is why I chose this psalm for a sermon on God's immensity. Now, just like we've done in the previous sermons, sometimes it helps us understand an attribute if we think about what it is not. For instance, when we thought about God's eternity, we said, okay, well, it's not like this, and it's not like this, and it's not like this. God's eternity is not an infinite succession of moments. It is not just the fact that he never began and will never end, but it is something else entirely. It's the same way when we come to God's omnipresent immensity. So look at uh, verse 7 with me. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The words that David uses for God are instructive for us in terms of his omnipresent immensity. Look at that word that he uses in the first part of verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? This is not, some people think this is referring to the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, in all my research and all my reading and in praying through this text, I, I don't think that's what David is saying here. I think that what David is referring to is God's incorporeal substance. I think what David is referring to is like our confession says, that God is a most pure spirit in his being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions. So I think what David is pointing to us to is that God's presence with David is not a physical presence. That's the first thing to understand that it's not. It's not a physical presence. This is a necessary distinction for David because, physical, because beings with physical bodies are bound by spatial limitations. Every single one of us here inherently understands that. I have dimensions, right? I have a specific height. I have a specific width. And those dimensions define my relationship with time and space. They say, you exist here, but not here. So in some ways, they define the fact that I'm a creature. They define the fact that I'm finite. And furthermore, uh, beings with spatial limitations like that, physical beings, uh, can only occupy one space at a time. If I was to start walking toward Pastor Calvin right now, um, eventually I'm going to run into him and we're not going to be able to occupy the same space at the same time. 
Due to spatial limitation, only one physical being can occupy a given space at one time. There can only be so many people in this room. It might look like there's a lot of empty seats right now, but if you get enough people in this room, we're going to run out of space because we can't all occupy the same spaces because we're physical beings and we're limited in that capacity. It's part of our creatureliness. It's part of our finitude. But when David says, he asks the question, where shall I go from your spirit? The implication is that God as spirit is subject to none of the spatial limitations physical beings are subject to. Even angels can on, who are spiritual beings can only be in one place at one time, but God is an infinite spirit. David is saying, where shall I go from it? Jesus says, or implies something similar in John chapter 4. Turn there with me. John chapter 4. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. And he's speaking about a day when they won't worship on the mountain in Jerusalem or on the mountain in Samaria. But God's people will worship in spirit and in truth. And the implication is that they will worship all over the globe. John chapter 4. Jesus, starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered to him, I have no husband. Jesus said, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. So our fathers worshipped on this mountain, locality. That's important here. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. So Christ has brought something new, saying, When the true, worshiper, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. Jesus is hearkening back to the fact that when, when the temple was built, Solomon prayed the inv- invocation over the temple and he said, how am I supposed to build a house for you to dwell in? Heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. Jesus is saying an hour is coming when you're not going to have the presence of God in a physical locality for you to worship him. Instead, instead Christ has brought about something new. The gospel has gone out into every corner of the earth, creating worshipers for God who worship in spirit and in truth at every point in the globe. God's omnipresence runs underneath this text. Not only does the fact that we're supposed to worship in spirit and the fact that God is spirit, um, not only does that describe the way that we're supposed to worship God, it describes the fact that God's relationship with his people, God's presence is overflowing the boundaries of that physical place in Jerusalem. And Jesus is pointing to a time when because God is spirit, people will be be able to worship him in churches just like ours anywhere around the globe. So I think those are a couple of texts that point to the fact that God being, a, being a, a spiritual being, a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions, has no spatial limitations. And thus we can worship him wherever we find ourselves. And David says he can't run from his presence. But second, not only is it not a physical presence, second, it's also not a measurable presence. Some people think of God's presence sort of like oxygen. You know, if, if you go to any point in our atmosphere, there's going to be oxygen present there. Well, maybe not if you go high enough. But if you go to any point in our atmosphere, there's going to be oxygen present in there. So in a certain way, oxygen is omnipresent in our atmosphere. Or if you were to spread out a curtain over the the whole floor of this room, and that curtain were to cover every inch of this floor. In some sense, 
that curtain would be omnipresent over every inch of space on the floor. But none of that actually describes how God is omnipresent. Because, for instance, if, with like the curtain illustration, if I'm over here on the floor, then I'm standing on one part of the curtain. If I go over to this corner of the room, I'm standing on another part of it. If I go over to that corner of the room, I'm standing on another part of it. So it's just as subject to spatial limitation as all other creaturely beings are. God's being is not spread out over all of creation. God's being is not subject to spatial limitation. God's being isn't diffused through all creation like some sort of a gas or like he's oxygen. This is God's omnipresent immensity is de- describing something higher about God than that. It's not a God whose presence is diffused. It's not a God whose presence is spread out. It's a God who is present in the fullness of his infinite being at every single point in space. So if I go over to this corner, God in the infinite present, in the infinite fullness of his being is present over here. And if I go outside, God in the, in the infinite essence of his being is present there. This is a God that is boundless and cannot be bounded by spatial limitation. So you can think of it that he's present with every point in space but contained no space. He transcends it all because he is the creator, creature like us. And this is proved, I think, by what he says in verse 7, the name or the, the word that he uses about God's presence. Look at verse 7. Where shall I flee from your presence? You know what, he, what word that is? Turn with me to Exodus uh, 33, verse 20. Exodus 33, verse 20. This is the text that we looked at describing God's incomprehensibility. And if you remember that sermon, you remember that Moses is making an audacious request in this text. He says, in verse 20, or Moses says, Please show me your glory. In verse 18, God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. That word for face is the same word that is used for presence in verse 7 of Psalm 139. And if you remember what we said about what Moses is asking in Exodus chapter 33, he's asking for a full disclosure of the totality of God's essence. So when God says you cannot see my face, God is saying you cannot see the fullness of my being. Well, that is exactly what David is saying that he can't flee from in verse 7. When he says, where shall I flee from your presence? Where shall I flee from your face? He's saying that the totality of God's essence, the whole being of God is with him wherever he goes. And this doesn't just extend to parts of creation. It's not just in heaven. That's not the only place where the fullness of God's glory exists. Look at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Do you know what David is doing here in these verses? He's almost describing the points on a compass. He's saying the highest point on the vertical axis, heaven, and the lowest point on the vertical axis, hell. And then he says the wings of the morning and dwelling in the uttermost parts of the sea. In that part of the world, the sea was to their west and the morning sun, this morning sun rises everywhere from the east. So he's saying as far as you can think of on the vertical axis and as far as you can think of on the horizontal axis, east and west, wherever you go in 
at any point in the cosmos, the fullness of God's presence will be there. And that's what David is taking comfort in, in this psalm. Remember, this is about God's providence in David's life. This is about God's ability to work out exactly what he planned for David when he wrote his days in the book before David was born. So not only is God powerful, decreeing from heaven what will happen in our lives and directing from afar, that's not how God works. God is present with you, with us, as his people, and at every single other point in space, working together his sovereign plan. But this also points us to some of the attributes that we've already looked at. And I think this is important. I think that seeing how these attributes all tie together and mutually reinforce one another is incredibly important. It's important for our worship. It's important that we stand in awe of who our God is. So what this shows about God is that he is an independent, simple, and infinite presence. Remember God's independence. What does his independence mean? It means that in order for him to be who he is and uh, do what he does, he depends on nothing outside of himself. But... A God who can be spatially defined and delimited is a God who is dependent upon space and no God at all. For instance, if, you know, some of God was over here and some of God was over there and another part of God was in China, that would be a God who is dependent upon space to be who he is. He would be spatially defined. A God who is spatially defined also cannot be the simple God that we saw a few weeks ago. Remember, God's simplicity means that God is just the I am. He doesn't have parts that compose him. He is not, you know, who he is and then righteousness in addition to that and then holiness in addition to that and justice in addition to that. No, all of these attributes of God are just who he is considered from a creaturely perspective. But a God who is dependent upon space cannot be a simple God. A God who can be measured by space is infinitely compounded by the spatial dimensions that measure his presence. For instance, I'm composed of spatial units. I'm a certain amount of inches high. I'm a certain amount of inches around, and I've got a wingspan of a certain amount of inches. I am a composed being. And that is, once again, it's one of the things that makes us finite as creatures. This is not who God is. He is an infinite and simple being. And then, I've kind of already hit on this, but infinity. A God who is measured is not an infinite God. So spatial locality, dimensions, and measurements are creaturely qualities, not transcendent ones. And getting into the practical part of this for David, this is the ground of his confidence in Yahweh. This is David's comfort and David's hope. Because like we said earlier in the sermon, in the introduction, David's had a lot of really, really bad things happen to him in his life. He's anointed king, but he has to wait 22 years. David, during that time, would be hunted relentlessly as the king whom he only ever, or by the king whom he only ever served, who tried to murder him over and over again. When he does become, become king, civil war breaks out between Saul's followers and his. He loses his best friend Jonathan in battle. His son Absalom leads a, su- a successful mutiny and ends up dying, and then he can't even grieve. David's life, and that's not even to mention all that happened with Bathsheba and the losing of his child, even though that was his fault. David's had a lot of really, really horrible things happen to him, but God established his covenant with David. God declares to David over and over again that he will work out his purposes in David's life. And so David's response in this psalm and in so many others is not bitterness, but it's confidence and it's comfort and it's hope. And why? Because not only were these things the sovereign decree of Yahweh, 
Not only were they part of his infinite, immutable knowledge, like it says in verses 1 through 6, but Yahweh himself is present with David to work out that decree. And the basis of David's comfort and hope is the basis of ours as well. This is why I so appreciate, it's, it's amazing how supernatural of a thing preaching is, because what Pastor Calvin this, was preaching this morning about God's presence with his people to go into the land and take it, even though Moses wasn't going with them and they were uncertain of the future. They were coming into the land with a new leader. The ground of their hope was to be the fact that God was present with him to work out his will in their lives, to deliver on his promises because he is everywhere present, working all things according to the counsel of his will. This is the comfort and hope of his people in ancient times, whether it's David or whether it's the, pe- the children of Israel coming out of Israel, and it's our comfort and hope today as well. Turn with me to Psalm 23. I was, wasn't even going to bring up this psalm, but I was reading through it this morning, and I just thought what a vivid illustration this is for our confidence to be built on the presence of God even in the midst of trials and tribulations. <laughs> Psalm 23, it's interesting the first three verses sound really nice and serene. And then the fourth verse, David just hits you with some awful circumstances. And it seems like it's taken too sharp of a turn. Verses 1 through 3, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Shepherd goes with the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So this sounds fantastic. The presence of the shepherd is with us wherever we go. And look at all the cool things that he's doing for us. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. If you were just to limit it to these verses, this would sound like a prosperity gospel. Look at verse 4. And I think that these are a simultaneous reality in David's life. I think that these are happening at the same time. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So green pastures, still waters, restoring of the soul, valley of the shadow of death. Oftentimes these are ever-present and cohabitating realities in the lives of the people, people of God. And the reason that David can experience these at the same time is the presence of God. This is what he's dwelling on. It's the fact that God in his infinite majesty is with him wherever he goes, wherever he leads David in life. He is with him as the wells of salvation that he can constantly drink out of. God himself is the still waters. God himself is the paths of righteousness that he leads David in. He himself is the restoration of David's soul, even as David walks through the valley of the shadow of death. Even as you are presented with the most soul-crushing suffering you will ever be presented with in your life, you know what can delight your soul and refresh you? The fact that God in his infinite presence is with you no matter where you're at. Even if they throw you in prison, he'll be there with you. They could throw you in a hole in the ground. They could put you in the ground. You'll never outrun the presence of God. And not only is it the presence of God, but we have such a wonderful reality in Christ. The presence of God is the presence of your crucified and risen Savior. He's the presence of the one who was wounded for you. He's the presence of the one who shed his precious blood for your soul. He is the one who promises before he ascends into heaven, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the gospel of the presence of Christ with you in your life. This is the import of God's omnipresent immensity. Not just omnipresence, because there's a lot of things that can be omnipresent in one way or another depending on how you define it. This is his immensity. The fact that you have, no matter where you go, 
access to the whole being of God. God in all of his majesty. God in all of his power. God in all of his authority. And he is there with you at every point to work his sovereign will in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are an awesome God who defies all understanding. Pray that you would use a stammering, stuttering servant like me to make your truth known. Pray that Christ would be magnified in the hearts of your people as we live for you this week. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Closing, let's take our Trinity hymn books, turning to 33, which comes from 139. 33 in the Trinity hymn book. Let's stand together as we sing. Lord, Thou hast searched me and doth know Where'er I rest, where'er I go Thou knowest all that I have planned And all my ways are in Thy hand My word from Thee I cannot hide, I feel thy power on every side. Oh, wondrous knowledge, awful might, unfathomed depth, unmeasured like. Where can I go apart from thee? Oh, 